Now tonight we have a very important lecture, The Abomination of Desolation. And uh, before we get into our study, I'd like to just say something. How many of you know that little song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So? Is that a nice little song? Is that the type of song that we sing in the worship service? Who is that song appropriate for? Children. You would expect that adults are a little more developed and they can sing something more sophisticated. You know, the Bible is the same way. The Bible is a very complex book. It requires profound study. It requires dedication, time, digging, searching. It's not enough just to come to church and have a good time and, uh, you know, have our emotions satisfied. As Christians, God expects us to be giants in the Word. He expects us to study the Word. That's what we've been trying to do here. Uh, you know, I could come and, and uh, have a story hour here, but there are people who can tell stories a lot better than I can. And so we want to come and we want to open God's book, and we want our intellect to be challenged, not only our heart to be touched, but we want our intellect to be challenged as well. Now let's go right into our study. This series is on the Gospels and the book of Acts. And so as you look at your list of texts, you're probably wondering why there are so many texts from Ezekiel at the beginning and why we have so many texts from Revelation at the end if we're dealing with the Gospels and the book of Acts. Well, the fact is that the very heart of our presentation has to do with the Gospels. But we have to understand a sequence of events in the Old Testament in order to understand that heart of our message. And we also need to go to the book of Revelation to understand the final fulfillment of that heart that we're going to study in our presentation tonight. So we must go back, first of all, to the Old Testament, which is the foundation of the New Testament. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, and verse 30, and also verse 35. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 30 and also verse 35. Here God is speaking to Israel, his chosen people, interestingly enough. No less than 23 times in this chapter, God calls Israel a harlot. His own people are called a harlot. Now that's strong language. Notice what it says in chapter 16 and verse 30. I'm only going to read a couple of uh, representative texts. God says, How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. Notice also verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. How could God address Israel, his chosen people, more than 23 times in Ezekiel 16, and that's not counting Jeremiah and also Ezekiel 23, where it's used several more times. How could God address his people with a name such as this, calling his people a harlot? Well, if you read Ezekiel 16, you're going to discover that the reason why God calls Israel a harlot is because they have mixed with the kings of the nations and they have assimilated the practices and the teachings of the nations that surrounded them. 
And so Israel is mixing with the kings of the nations and she has assimilated the false teachings and practices of the surrounding nations. That's the reason why God calls them a harlot of all things. Now I want you to notice that this harlot is described as being garbed in a very special way. Go with me to Ezekiel 16 and verses 16 and 17. I don't want you to get distracted even for a minute because in Revelation we're going to come back to all of this. And in Matthew we're also going to come back to it. Verse 16 says, You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver which I had given you and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. Notice they've taken the jewelry, the gold and the silver. Actually in Ezekiel 23, the garb or the dress of this harlot is described in vivid detail. Now I want you to notice that Israel had adopted and assimilated, as I mentioned, all kinds of abominable doctrines and practices from the surrounding nations. I'd like to go to Ezekiel chapter 8, and I want to read one particular verse which describes the worst abomination of all of the abominations that Israel had adopted from the surrounding pagan nations. Now, Ezekiel chapter 8 is known as the abominations chapter. And the reason is that God shows Ezekiel an abomination which is being committed among God's people, and Ezekiel thinks to himself, oh, this is terrible. But God says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you an abomination that is worse than that. And so then God shows him a worse abomination. And Ezekiel is terrified. He says, this is terrible. God says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you an abomination which is worse even than this one. And the list of abominations culminates with the greatest abomination of all. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. The greatest abomination in this chapter is that God's professed people, those who profess to serve the true and the living God, according to this, are worshiping what? The sun. And I want you to notice that God promises as a result to come in judgment against Israel. Let's read chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2 and discover where that judgment is going to come from because they're practicing these abominations, these doctrines and practices that have come from the nations, the worst of which is worshiping the sun. Where is the punishment going to come from? Notice Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end has come upon what? Upon the four corners of the land. Don't forget that. Destruction is coming upon what? 
upon the four corners of the land because of the abominations that they are committing. And I want you to notice that there's not going to be any mercy. Notice once again chapter 8 and verse 17. God is speaking to Ezekiel. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Now in Ezekiel chapter 23, this is described, this wrath of God is described in a very interesting fashion. God is going to give Israel something to drink, which is really an indication of his wrath. Notice Ezekiel chapter 23 and verses 33 and 34. God's wrath is given to Israel from a cup, the cup of the fierceness of God's wrath. It says in verse 33, You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. In other words, God says, you are going to drink the cup of my what? Of my wrath and my fury because of the abominations that you are committing in Israel. Now it's interesting to notice as you read the book of Ezekiel that because of these abominations, God actually comes to Jerusalem to perform a work of judgment before the city is destroyed. Do you remember that in one of our lectures, when we talked about Jesus' concept of the judgment, that we said that the judgment takes place before Jesus comes, and the purpose is to separate the righteous from the wicked so that Jesus can take his righteous people home and give them the reward when he comes. You remember when we studied that? Here we find another biblical example that judgment and separation takes place before destruction. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 1, we have that very exotic scene where the Bible tells us that God comes in this cosmic chariot-like vehicle. It has wheels, like wheels within a wheel, and the wheels are full of eyes, and there's lightning bolts coming out of it, and there's a throne, and there's one seated on the throne, and above the throne there's a beautiful rainbow. And, and some people say, man, this must be some kind of UFO or something. Well, it's speaking in symbolic language, folks. This is symbolic of the fact that God is descending from heaven, if you read carefully, and he's coming down to the Jerusalem temple. And what is he going to do in the Jerusalem temple? He is going to perform a work of what? Judgment. Destruction is coming from the four corners because of their abominations. But the question is, is everybody in the city committing the abominations of the nations? Is everybody in the city practicing what the nations have given to Israel in the form of apostasy? The answer is no. Must those individuals be separated from the wicked before the wicked are destroyed? 
Absolutely yes. And that's why God comes in Ezekiel chapter 1 to perform a work of separation. Now this work of separation is described in Ezekiel chapter 9. If you go with me, Ezekiel chapter 9, and we'll read the few, first few verses. And by the way, I want to underline this fact. Don't miss it, because we're going to come back to it in Matthew, and we're going to come back to it in Revelation as well. Ezekiel chapter 8 has just described the abominations of God's people. What did I say? The abominations of whom? Not the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Philistines, the abominations that God's people are committing. And the greatest abomination is at the end of chapter 8. They are worshiping what? They are worshiping the sun. But there's now going to be a, a group that is contrasted to those in Ezekiel 8 verse 16. Chapter 8 ends with those who are sun worshipers. Chapter 9 begins with those who are sealed with the seal of God. Two groups, those who worship the sun and those who are sealed with the seal of God. You say, where is this about the seal of God? Let's read starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen. By the way, this is Jesus Christ. The high priest was clothed in linen on the day of atonement, the day of judgment, Yom Kippur. So it says, one man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. It says, they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of Babylon. Which city? Let's continue. Go through the midst of the city. Through the midst of Jerusalem. This is a judgment of the pagans or of God's people? God's people. Now notice, verse 4 again, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads. Where? Foreheads. Where else in the Bible do we have the idea of a mark being put on the forehead? In Revelation. So, do you have to go from Ezekiel to Revelation and vice versa to understand this? Of course. We're going to go to Revelation later on, but we have to go to Matthew first. And so it says, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Is everybody in Jerusalem apostate? Has everyone gone astray from the Lord? Is everyone assimilating false doctrine and false practices? No. God has a people within a people. God has a remnant within the larger body of those who profess to serve Him. Is that point clear in your mind? Comes through clearly here. Most of the city is apostate, but God has a remnant within the city who sigh and cry because they cannot stand the abominations which are being committed in the city. And so it continues saying in verse 5, what's going to happen? Do you, do you notice the word abominations here, by the way? 
abominations that are committed in it. What is the worst of these abominations according to the previous chapter? Worshiping what? The sun. Verse 5, what happens after God's people are separated in this judgment? Oh, it says in verse 5, to the others he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Boy, that doesn't sound like God, you say. But folks, these people had a chance, didn't they? God never destroys without giving people the chance to make the choice for themselves. If you choose to be lost and you're destroyed, don't blame God for your destruction because you have the choice to be saved. So God is only fulfilling our wishes. If I say, God, I want to be destroyed, God says, I respect your freedom of choice. If God says, I want you to be saved and I accept to be saved, God saves me because he respects my freedom of choice. God is a God who respects our choice. Now notice what he continues saying. Verse 6, utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. Now notice this. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my what? Sanctuary. Who were the ones that served in the sanctuary? The leaders, the priests. And so it says, so they began with the elders who were where? Who were before the temple. Who was responsible for this great apostasy in Israel? Who bore most of the blame for the apostasy of the people? It was their religious leaders, believe it or not. Now let me say something so that you understand a very important point. There are many leaders in the Christian world that are fine Christians. They love the Lord and they have accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ. They don't know many of the things that we're studying in this seminar. Likewise, there are thousands, probably millions of Christians in all of the churches that love the Lord. They've accepted Jesus Christ and they are saved right at this moment because they're in Christ. But they don't know these things. And so that's the reason why we have seminars such as this, because the day is coming when this is going to take place, not in Jerusalem, but all over the world. And God wants everyone to be saved. People need to know this. Is this a message of life or death? Yes or no? Absolutely. Revelation universalizes this. See, in the Old Testament it was Jerusalem. At the end of time, the seal of God and the mark of the beast are given worldwide. And whoever has the seal of God will be saved. Whoever has the mark of the beast will be lost. How important is this message then? It's not an optional thing. It is a matter of life and death. Notice Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 31 on who primarily was responsible. But let me tell you, the people can't get off the hook either. They can't say, well, the leaders made me do it. That's kind of like the people who say the devil made me do it. That won't work as an excuse in the judgment. Notice Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 31. And by the way, Jeremiah is writing about the same period. He's a contemporary of Ezekiel. And he's speaking also about the destruction of Jerusalem. So we're not taking anything out of context. He's speaking about the same destruction, about the same abominations, about the same period. Notice what it says in verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. 
But what will you do in the end? Priests who rule by their own power, prophets who claim to see visions, but they don't. And the Bible says that the people loved to have it so. Now listen to what I'm going to say. As soon as this judgment was finished, as soon as God came to the temple, he placed a seal upon all of his faithful children. The Bible tells us that the glory that had come into the temple now left the temple. Notice Ezekiel chapter 11 and verses 22 and 23. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verses 22 and 23. The work of judgment in the temple has already been performed. And now the glory that had come to the temple in chapter 1 to perform the work of judgment has nothing more to do there. And so it's going to depart. Notice chapter 11 and verses 22 and 23. And don't miss this point because we're going to come back to it again in a few moments. Verse 22 says, Then the cherubim, by the way, these are the ones who move the wheels of this chariot. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. What did the glory do? It left the city. It went up from the city. In other words, it left the temple. And then what did it do? It says, and stood. In other words, it stayed for a little while. It stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Now, let me ask you, what is the mountain which is on the east side of Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives, if you look at a map. And so the glorious Shekinah, which is uh, the name that is given to the glory of God in the Old Testament, departs from the temple when the work of judgment is finished. And now the Shekinah moves up over the city, and it stands for a few moments upon the Mount of Olives before, according to a little bit later in the book of Ezekiel, before it leaves the Mount of Olives and it goes back to heaven. Now the city has been what? Forsaken. Because of its abominations, the work of separation has been done. The righteous are sealed. The wicked are the ones who worship the sun. Now there are only two groups. The glory of God has departed from the temple. And how much protection does the temple and how much protection does Israel have against the enemy, Nebuchadnezzar, who has come to destroy the city? They have absolutely no protection. Their abominations led to desolation. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 36, 2 Chronicles 36, I want you to see that abominations we've spoken about, but their abominations lead to the desolation of Jerusalem. Notice 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 15. It says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers. What does this remind you of? Is there a passage in the New Testament which is very similar to this from the lips of Jesus? Absolutely. In Matthew chapter 21, and again in Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. 
till there was no what? Till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men. This is the same thing that we read in Ezekiel. Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin. You remember we read this? On the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and all of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill, now notice this, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths as long as she lay, what? Desolate. She kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So what did Nebuchadnezzar come and do? He desolated Jerusalem. Why did he desolate Jerusalem? Because of their abominations. So this is the abomination of what? Of desolation. The abominations lead to desolation. Because the Shekinah has left, there is no longer any protection. The Lord is gone. So the city is at the mercy of the enemy. And its desolation is guaranteed. Now why was the city of Jerusalem destroyed? We need to go to the book of Jeremiah and take a look at a couple of very interesting verses. Do you know that there was a primary reason why the city of Jerusalem was destroyed? It was because the great majority of the people in the city were not keeping God's holy Sabbath. So what were the faithful doing then? What were the faithful doing? Keeping God's holy Sabbath. Notice what Jeremiah 17 says. Very clearly. Chapter 17 of Jeremiah. And let's read verse 27. After he said that if you keep my Sabbath, Jerusalem will stand forever. It will never be destroyed. The other side of the coin, he says, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be what? Quenched. What is it directly that led to the destruction of Jerusalem? The fact that they were trampling upon what? God's Sabbath. If they'd kept the Sabbath, the city would have remained what? Forever. Notice also Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. We're talking about that mark or that sign which is placed on the forehead of those who sigh and cry. What is that sign or what is that mark? Ezekiel himself tells us what it is in chapter 20 and verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. Then let's jump down to verse 20. It says in verse 20, Hallow my Sabbaths. That means sanctify, keep holy my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So the Bible tells us clearly that the main reason why the city of Jerusalem was destroyed is because people were worshiping the sun 
instead of observing what? God's holy Sabbath. So the contrast is between sun worshipers and those who are faithful to the Creator God by keeping His holy Sabbath. Now, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, was desolated because of her harlotries and her abominations. But Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25 tells us that God promised that the city would once again be what? Rebuilt. After 70 years of desolations, God said, you're going to return to your land, you're going to rebuild the temple, you're going to rebuild the city, you're going to rebuild the walls, and once again, Israel will be reestablished in their land. It says there in Daniel chapter 9 and verse uh, 25, from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there were going to be 69 weeks. Now we're not going to study tonight the prophecy of the 70 weeks, but the main point that I want us to notice here is that God promised that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, and after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, then Messiah the Prince was going to come at the end of this prophecy. Is that clear in your mind? Without interpreting the prophecy. It says the word is going to go forth to restore and build Jerusalem. That must mean that Jerusalem had been what? Destroyed. I mean, you don't have to have the intelligence of Albert Einstein to understand that. That if the city needs to be restored and rebuilt, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then after that, after the, at the end of the 70 weeks, the Messiah is going to what? He's going to come. Now, I want you to notice uh, Haggai chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9. You say, Haggai, is that book in the Bible have mercy? Yes, it is. It's one of those little books that's very difficult to find. Haggai chapter 2. And uh, it talks about this second temple which was built. You know, Solomon's temple was one of the marvels of the world, wasn't it? It was just outstanding, just a fantastic temple. I mean, it was, it, it was uh, something that was admired by people from all of the nations of antiquity. It had lots of gold and silver and precious stones and precious wood and precious materials. It had many riches within it. And when this second temple was built, after the captivity... See, Nebuchadnezzar had taken all the gold, all the silver, the precious stones, the precious wood, etc. So they built a far inferior temple after the captivity. And I want you to notice that there are some individuals who had seen Solomon's temple 70 years earlier, and notice their reaction. Verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? <laughs> but then I want you to notice that God makes a real strange promise. Let's jump down to verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple. Which temple? The one that was built after the captivity, right? I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And then here comes the verse that the Jews till today are still trying to explain. Because this temple never reached the glory of Solomon's temple. At least in gold and silver, precious wood, precious stones, precious materials. It never reached, even though it had been remodeled by Herod, 
for 46 years. It never compared to Solomon's temple. And yet notice verse 9, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now that temple never reached a glory greater than the one of Solomon. It was destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans. And it never reached, apparently, the level of glory that is, that is um, presented here in the book of Haggai. Is this a false prophecy that was never fulfilled? Absolutely not. Go with me to the book of John, chapter 1, and verse 14. John, chapter 1, and verse 14. And we're going to really have to motor now, because time is flying by so fast. Unbelievable how time flies when we're having a good time. Notice John chapter 1 and verse 14. Speaking about the incarnation of Jesus, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt that is used there is the same word that is used in the book of Hebrews to speak of the Hebrew tabernacle. In other words, it can very, be very appropriately translated, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us dwelt among us. Just like in the Old Testament you had the Shekinah glory that dwelt with Israel. Now Jesus comes into the tabernacle of flesh and he dwells among us. How do I know that this is the same Shekinah glory? Because the last part of the verse says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is it that made this last temple, this second temple after, capti after the captivity, so glorious? It wasn't the gold, it wasn't the silver, it wasn't the precious stones, it wasn't the expensive wood, it wasn't the fancy material that it was made out of. What made this temple more glorious than the previous temple? Jesus Christ himself, who is the glory of the Father, walked in its courts. Now let's go to the closing scenes of the ministry of Jesus. Did Jesus make call after call to the Jewish nation during his ministry? What did they do with his messages, the vast majority of them? They mocked him. They rejected his message. And eventually they led him to the cross because they would not accept what he was teaching. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 21. And notice the last visit that Jesus makes to the Jerusalem temple, this second temple. And by the way, this is why the temple is so glorious, because now Jesus, after the triumphal entry, is going to walk into it. Notice verse 12 of Matthew 21. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. We've studied this before. What is the temple called when Jesus goes in? The temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here the temple is called the temple of God, and Jesus refers it to it as what? As my house. And then Jesus, in the following three chapters, makes his final appeal to the Jewish leaders. You know, if you read Matthew 21 to 23, that'll be your homework when you get home tonight. 
you'll discover that Jesus in these chapters had contacts with almost every single Jewish denomination of his day. With the Herodians, with the scribes, with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with the Zealots. He had conversations with all of them. Most of the conversations in the temple. And yet, in spite of the fact that he's making this last call in the temple for them to accept him as the Messiah and to accept his message, they reject him. They say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 23, what Jesus does upon his rejection in the temple. He has some very interesting words to pronounce. Verse 37 of Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, have we read this somewhere else before? Yes. See, this is the last opportunity. Last of all, he sends his son. So it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You can almost see the tears in the eyes of Jesus. You can almost see the pain on his face. You can almost feel the intense anguish that his heart felt when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what a long and checkered history you have. I just wanted to gather you. I wanted you to be my people. I wanted you to, to present the coming Messiah myself to the world so that when I came, everyone would be ready to receive me. And now, in spite of the fact that I've been with you in the temple all of these last days of my life, you still will not have me. And so now notice the terrible words in verse 38. See, your house is left unto you desolate. Now wait a minute. There's a change here. When Jesus went into the temple, what was the temple called? The temple of God. And Jesus says, this is my house. But after they reject his messages in the temple, he says what? Your house is left unto you desolate. You remember in the Old Testament what happened when the judgment had been finished of those who accepted and those who rejected? What happened with the Shekinah glory? The Shekinah glory lifted up and it went and it stopped. It stood where? On the Mount of Olives. And now the city was what? Desolate. Here Jesus uses the same word. He says, your house is left unto you desolate. And then where does Jesus go? Of course, all of this is a coincidence. All of this is an accident. It just kind of, somebody threw it all together this way. I don't think so. It's mathematically impossible. Did the Jews repeat the history of what had happened with Jerusalem in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now notice chapter 24 and verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, did Jesus depart the temple? Did the Shekinah glory depart the temple? Yes. Now what is Jesus going to talk about? Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Was Jerusalem going to be desolated? Yes, because they had committed which abomination? 
the abomination of rejecting her Messiah. And then where did Jesus sit? Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now it's the living Shekinah who is sitting on the Mount of Olives after having departed the temple and left it desolate because the people have rejected him. By the way, did everybody reject him? Or were there some who were faithful? There were some faithful ones. So it says, now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they want to know what the signs of the end are going to be. The end of the city, first of all. And then Jesus goes into a series of things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. Now time will not allow us to go through everything, but I'm going to synthesize uh, what happened in Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 4 all the way down to verse 14. There it speaks about wars and rumors of wars. There it speaks about famine. There it speaks about pestilence. There it speaks about earthquakes. There it speaks about children uh, turning in their parents. It speaks about crime. It speaks about sedition. No more love. All of these things are described there. Do you know that all of these things happened before Jerusalem was destroyed? There's a book which I would like to recommend all of you to get. It makes very interesting reading. It's called The Complete Works of Flavius Josephus. Actually, there are several books in that volume that Josephus wrote. By the way, Josephus was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, and Josephus was born in the year 37. So he was quite grown up when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. There he says that the hunger in the city, the famine, was so terrible that mothers ate their children. He says that people became so hungry that they gnawed on the leather of their sandals and their belts. He says that for food, parents would kill their children to take a morsel of food that they might have found by sneaking outside the wall of the city. He tells us there there was terrible famine and pestilence in the city, terrible diseases within the city. By the way, there were several earthquakes that took place between the ascension of Jesus in the year 31 and the year 70 when the city was destroyed. There were a series of several very interesting earthquakes during that period. All kinds of false Christs and false messiahs arose according to Flavius Josephus. So all of these things that Matthew 24 mentions were fulfilled in connection with Jerusalem. We're going to notice a little bit later on that there's going to be a second fulfillment of Matthew 24. Because there were two questions that were asked here. When will these things be connected with the temple of Jerusalem? And what will be the sign of the end of the world? And so Jesus blends both of them in his answer in Matthew chapter 24. Now, I want you to notice in Matthew 24 and verse 15 something very interesting that Jesus refers to. Matthew chapter 24, and I would like to read verse 15. After all of these major disasters and pestilences and wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, earthquakes, and all of these things, he says that this is going to be the sign that Jerusalem is about to come to an end. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand then let those who are in Judea do what? flee to the mountains now the question is what is this abomination of desolation that when the people see it 
They're supposed to flee from Jerusalem to the mountains. What is this abomination of desolation? Well, I thank God that we have more than one gospel. Because in the gospel of Luke, we are told very clearly what this abomination of desolation was. Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. We just notice in Matthew 24, it says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, flee. Luke is going to express it differently. He's going to explain what the abomination of desolation means. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what is the abomination of desolation? As you compare both verses, the abomination of desolation is Jerusalem surrounded by what? Surrounded by armies, then know that it's what? That it's desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. So what is the abomination that is going to lead to desolation? It is the Roman armies that have surrounded Jerusalem. Now you might ask the question, what's so abominable about an army surrounding Jerusalem? Let me explain to you a few things that Josephus said. And by the way, in the material that you're going to get tonight as you go out, you'll have all of the references in Wars of the Jews. And I encourage you to go uh, you know, to the Christian bookstore. It's this uh, complete uh, works of Josephus is available in any Christian bookstore. And I just uh, encourage you to check me out to see if I'm telling you the truth. That's what I want you to do. That's why we give you the lecture material at the end. So you can go home and say, I'm going to check this guy out to see if whether, he, whether he's telling me the truth or not. Now, I wouldn't stand up here and purposely not tell you the truth. I'll tell you that. Because as a minister of the gospel, it's my role to preach the truth. But I still want you to go home, and I still want you to check me out. I mean, if the Bereans could check out the Apostle Paul, the least that you can do is check me out. Now, let me tell you what Josephus says. The Roman standards, you know what a standard is? It's the ensign that the armies took before them, their emblem, their ensign, the sign of their armies, of legions. That was a very interesting uh, standard. It had an eagle with outstretched wings. In the talons of the eagle were arrows. The eagle was looking towards the right side, and surrounding the eagle was a golden wreath which represented the orb or the circle of the sun. Basically what this standard meant, it represented the sun god Mithra, which was the god that the Romans worshipped as the sun god. And we know by Josephus that when the Roman armies surrounded a city, in this case particularly Jerusalem, the first thing that they would do, they would take their standards and they would put them in the ground and then the whole Roman army would kneel before their standards to worship the sun god represented by the eagle and the golden wreath which surrounded the eagle. Now obviously the abomination of desolation in the holy place could not mean in the holy place of the sanctuary, because then it would be too late to flee. Are you following me? These armies have surrounded Jerusalem, according to Luke 21. 
And it's an abomination. They still have not entered the holy ground of the city. They're outside, but it's an abomination. Why? Because they're worshiping their standards that have the eagle, which symbolizes what? Symbolizes the sun. I want you to notice something very interesting. In the Old Testament story, we had the contrast between those who were worshiping the sun and those who had the sign or the mark of God on their foreheads who were faithful Sabbath keepers as a sign between God and them. It's interesting that the abomination which will lead to the desolation of Jerusalem has to do also with sun worship. Was everybody worshiping the sun? Oh, notice a very crucial verse at this point. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20. Don't miss this point. Matthew 24 and verse 20. Not everybody in the city was apostate. Not everybody in the city was going to be destroyed. Jesus had said to his people, listen, when you see this, you need to flee. Now you say, now wait a minute. They see the army surrounding Jerusalem. How are they going to be able to flee? Flavius Josephus gives us the insight. That's why I want you to get wars of the Jews. Not only because of what I'm telling you tonight, but there's a lot of fascinating reading in there. For example, you'll discover that more than a million Jews were crucified outside Jerusalem. That is an awesome number. Josephus says that there were so many crosses that people couldn't even wiggle between them. All because they rejected Jesus, the Messiah. They had committed the ultimate abomination to reject Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. I want you to notice, however, that not everybody remained in the city and not everyone was apostate. There was a group of Sabbath keepers. You say, can that be in Matthew 24? Go with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20. Actually, let's read, starting with verse uh, 15 again, so that you can catch the context. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those nurse with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Was there a group of Sabbath keepers in the city? Yes! And Jesus says, pray that when you see the sign and you have to flee, when you see the sign of, of these Romans worshiping their sun standards, make sure that you pray that you will not have to flee in the winter because it would be very cold or on the holy Sabbath. See once again the contrast between sun worship and those who were keeping what? God's holy Sabbath. Now you're probably wondering why uh, or how the people could flee from Jerusalem if it was surrounded. Flavius Josephus tells us something very interesting. He says that for some unexplainable reason, humanly speaking, Cestius, who was the general of the Roman armies at this point, when it all looked like it was the right moment to take the city, because people were starving in the city, it was about to fall, Cestius told all of his armies, let's leave. And they left. And when the Jews inside saw that they, had, that they were leaving, they said, this is the providence of God. God is working for us. And they went out of the city, and they pursued the Roman armies. 
and they actually killed many of the Roman soldiers. They said, this is a sign that God is with us. What do you suppose the Sabbath keepers did? They had seen the sign. And do you know what they did? Instead of pursuing the Roman armies, they went and fled to the mountains. Shortly thereafter, Titus came to Jerusalem and surrounded it. And this time, there was no retreat. The city was taken. And everyone who remained in the city was destroyed. Now you tell me if the providence of God wasn't working in a marvelous way. But now we need to dedicate the last ten minutes of our time to talk about the end time application of this. Because it does have an end time application. And the end time application is somewhat similar to the application in Matthew, but it also has elements of the first application in the Old Testament. Let me preface what we're going to say with this. In the Old Testament and in the days of Christ, we are dealing with literal Jerusalem. Correct? In a literal place. We're dealing with literal standards with literal sun on them and a literal eagle on it. But in this dispensation, since the Jewish nation, the literal nation has been rejected by Christ as his chosen nation, the church is now Israel. Which means that the fulfillment of this, the final fulfillment, is going to be what? Worldwide. And it's going to be spiritual. Are you understanding the principle? Now, let's take a look at the book of Revelation of this. By the way, uh, does Matthew 24 have more than just the application to the Jews? Yes, because there were two questions. What will be the sign of these things and also the sign of your coming and the end of the world? So it has two applications, a literal to Israel and a spiritual at the end of the world. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 17 and very quickly notice some very interesting details that we find here. Revelation chapter 17. And we looked at this yesterday, but I think in the light of what we're studying tonight, it would do us good to look at it again. Then one of the se- verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Well, you know, that's got to represent the communists. I'm being facetious, of course. I mean, couldn't Fidel Castro be represented by this? Huh? Why? For a very simple reason. John is referring to what? To what we found in Ezekiel. I'm going to show it to you. So let me ask you, the great harlot must be an apostate what? Church. Did you catch it? You say, is this like Ezekiel? Well, let's read. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. The many waters are the multitude. She controls the peoples of the world. Does she do the same thing with the kings as the Old Testament harlot? Hmm. With whom the kings of the earth committed what? Oh, there's fornication between her and the kings. We did find that in Ezekiel. Hmm. 
And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. I didn't read you a text back in Ezekiel 23 where it speaks about drinking the wine. Do you know what the wine represents here? In the Old Testament it was literal wine, but here wine represents false what? False doctrine or false teachings. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. How is this woman dressed? Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of... Excuse me, I didn't hear you. Now where was that word? Was it in connection with the harlot in the Old Testament? Yes, full of abominations. What are the abominations? What must be one of them? Now you say, now wait a minute, sun worship? The Christian church doesn't practice sun worship. Hmm, we'll come to that. But let's go back and read here. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. In other words, where, does she get, where did she get all of these abominations from? From doing what? From fornicating with the kings of the world. She's assimilated their false teachings and false practices. That's the wine. Those are the abominations of her fornication. And then notice verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. The what? The mother of harlots. That must mean that she uh, has what? She must have had daughters or children that were born from her at some point. Let me ask you, who's born from who? The children from the mother or the mother from the children? That's a dumb question, right? Must the mother live and grow up and exist for an extended period in order to have children? So who exists before who? The harlot and then what? Children are born from her. Are her children going to be just like her? Are they going to teach what she teaches? Are they going to assimilate many of her doctrines and practices? Absolutely yes. And notice once again it says, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the what? And of the abominations of the earth. See the word again? Now what's going to happen to this Babylon because of her abominations? What happened? The abomination of what? Desolation. Go with me to verse 16. It says in verse 16, And the ten horns, by the way, these are the kings that she fornicates with at the end of time. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her... Excuse me, I didn't hear you. Will make her desolate. Is there going to be abominations that lead to desolation in the book of Revelation? Yes, they will leave her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. We didn't read the passages from Ezekiel 23 where it speaks identically to this. See, because we don't have time to cover everything. All I can do is throw out ideas so that you see how to connect all of these stories. See, that's why I said that it's not enough just to sit down and sing Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's for children. God expects us to be adults. He expects us to be champions in the Word. He expects us to dedicate time to His Word. 
He doesn't want us to come to church just to have a jolly good time, raise our hands, jump a little, dance in the aisles, and then say, oh, we had a marvelous experience in church today, and when you go home, what do you have left? Excuse me for being so clear, but I do love you all, believe it or not. Now, where is this destruction going to come from? Where is this desolation going to come from? I'm going to go through this quickly. Revelation 7, 1 to 3 said it's, that there are four angels at the four corners of the earth, and the destruction is coming from the four corners of the earth, just like in Ezekiel chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2. Now, the book of Revelation speaks about two groups, those who have the seal of God and those who have what? The mark of the beast. Now, let me ask you, what do you suppose the seal of God is? What was it in Ezekiel? Sabbath. What were the people in Jerusalem doing, those faithful followers of Jesus, when they were told to flee? What were they keeping? The Sabbath. So what must God's people in the end time be doing? They must be keeping the Sabbath. That's the seal of God. But listen, the mark of the beast is the opposite of the seal of God. They're presented as opposites. Revelation 13, verse 16 speaks about the mark of the beast. Chapter 14, verse 1 speaks about the seal of God. They're in contrast one to another. You can also read Revelation 14, 9 through 11. There it speaks about woe to he who receives the mark of the beast. And then in verse 12 it says, here are they who keep the commandments of God. So those who have the mark of the beast are in contrast to those who keep the commandments of God, who worship the Creator. That's why the first angel says, worship him who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of the water. Now you might be saying, well, Pastor, you're saying then that the observance of the first day of the week, which by the way is called what? Is the same thing as worshiping the sun? Is that what you're saying? You say that doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. And let me tell you why. You see, Christians don't worship the literal sun because we're in the dispensation of symbolic things. Spiritual application. Now let me ask you some questions here. Some of you have heard this a million times before. I'll ask it again. Good to review. Let me ask you, who made the sun? God. Did God make the sun for worship? So what happens if you convert the sun into an object of worship? That is called what? Idolatry. Let me ask you now, who made the first day of the week? Did he make it for worship? So what happens if you make it a day of worship? There's no difference. In one case, you're making an object that is secular every day, and you're converting it into an object of worship. In the other case, you're taking a secular work day, and you're converting it into a day of worship. But the principle is the same. You're using something for worship that God has not made for worship. And that is idolatry. Now you say, you're saying then that Christians who observe the first day of the week are, 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 are idolaters? Let me say, you, say to you, I'm not saying that they're all practicing idolatry knowingly. Because they don't know where Sunday came from. Do you know where Sunday came from? It came from the ancient Romans. The, the day of the sun god was Sunday. It was adopted into the church in the days of Constantine the Great, a pagan Roman emperor who favored the church. It came into the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church assimilated it 
claims to have changed God's law, this is the little horn of Daniel 7, who thinks he can change the times and the law of God. And then do you know what? This day of worship was passed from the mother to the daughters when they were born in the 16th century. And the daughters still keep the same day that was changed supposedly by the mother. Do you think it's a serious thing to change one of God's commandments? Particularly the commandment that says that we're supposed to honor God on His day because He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Some people say it's not important which day you keep. That would be like Adam saying it's not important which, which tree I don't eat from. When God says this tree, he means this tree. When God says this day, he means this day. What if your boss said, we're going to have a meeting every Monday at 9 o'clock and you show up on Tuesday at 9? The boss says, oh, no sweat, no problem. Monday, Tuesday, same thing. You know that it's not that way. The person who lays down the ground rules of when he's going to meet with us and fellowship with us is God, not us. And let me tell you, folks, it's a day of fellowship with him. It's not that God is saying, you've got to come. You know, if we love Jesus, God won't have to say, you've got to come. We'll want to come. And when the Sabbath is ending, you know, we'll say to, to Jesus, now, Lord, um, the Sabbath is ending. Could you stay a few extra minutes with me? Isn't that the way it is? When you love someone? See, the Sabbath and Sunday, it's a matter of love. Who you love. Whose authority you accept. Whose authority you obey. Unfortunately, our time is up, and I was not able to talk to you about the role of the United States in all of this. You will have some of it in the material that you'll be receiving at the end. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that the United States has assimilated not only the Protestant denominations, but also our government has assimilated directly from Rome many of the things of the Roman Empire. Our founding fathers, amazing. We're going to talk to you about the $1 bill, the seal, the great seal of the United States. But maybe we can do that uh, one of these nights as an extra session. Would you like to come and study that? Okay, we'll make plans to do it. I hope everybody tonight has made their decision to keep God's holy Sabbath out of love and out of respect for God. Is that your desire? To keep God's holy Sabbath? Come to his house of worship and honor and glorify his name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us such a clear message in your holy word. Lord, we realize that the Sabbath is such an important part of your holy law. It's a seal in the center of your law. It's a sign between you and your people. And if the whole Christian world almost has forgotten your holy Sabbath, they don't want anything to do with it. They've assimilated this abomination from the mother, and the mother assimilated from ancient pagan Rome. And Christians, when they keep it, they think they're honoring Jesus because he resurrected on the first day of the week, when the Bible says that that makes no difference because Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. Oh Lord, open the eyes of anyone here who doesn't have this clear. And help them, Lord, to make the right decision tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.